it's Julie Bindle and sorry if there's a little bit of noise in the background as I record this introduction to my latest podcast episode but I'm in a very noisy breakfast room hiding away in the corner in a hotel in Barcelona it's a long story anyway so today I am speaking with Hannah Barnes the journalist and author who has written the most incredible, meticulously researched, fascinating book, Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. Hannah, it's so lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. Tell me about your work and how you first became a journalist and what kind of stories you've reported on over the years. Oh, so I first... I did a broadcast, postgraduate broadcast diploma in 2005. So I'd, I'd already graduated and I'd worked for a little bit for a political news agency. But it wasn't, I mean, it was interesting, but that's when I knew that I I wanted to do proper news rather than sort of just follow parliamentary debate. And I worked in local radio uh, for a few years in commercial radio, reporting and reading breakfast news. And that's where I really got my teeth into sort of I don't really like the term, but, you know, investigative journalism, if you like. And I was working down in Sussex, um, quite near Gatwick Airport, for a station called Mercury FM. Uh, And we were hearing um, that (laughs) one of the parking companies operating out of Gatwick, it appeared that people had gone on holiday, you know, they'd paid to park their car securely, and lots of people seemed to be coming back, and their cars were damaged and with empty fuel tanks and all this kind of stuff. So I, you know, it's that kind of boring thing you do as a, as a reporter. You just go there and watch and see what happens and talk to people. Um, and it transpired that this company was seriously dodgy and were driving these poor people's cars around while they're on holiday and pranging them and, uh, you know, not, not parking them in a 24-hour car park with surveillance and all that. And that won Scoop of the Year at the IRN Awards, which is kind of the commercial radio network um, that you, I think it still exists. I'm not sure, actually. Um, and that's so, so and, you know, that, so I, I always sort of really liked digging and finding out stuff. I think I'm a naturally nosy person. I think you've got to be as a journalist. Um, and so I stayed in commercial radio for a couple of years and then I moved to the BBC as a researcher in 2008 and went to what was then called the um, Radio Current Affairs Department. It's now called Long Form Audio. So essentially radio documentaries, but also those much-loved programmes on Radio 4, like From Our Own Correspondent, um, Law in Action, more or less, those kind of half-hour chunky things. And immediately went into kind of the more investigative arm. So I did um, what was then called Donald McIntyre on Five Live, but then became Five Live Investigates and worked with some really great people. So it was kind of every week we had to do an investigation, which is quite gruelling. You know, some were better than others, obviously. Um, and then sort of stayed in that kind of analytical um, kind of journalism really throughout and did years on more or less. I, I, I consider myself to be numerate. I, uh, as, as someone who had A-level maths, I was deemed to be the, the most uh, numerate person in the department, which was slightly worrying, but... Um, and I think that's actually, it was really interesting working on more or less because 
I find it really bizarre that so many journalists say to me, oh, I don't work with numbers. We work with words. It's like, but if we can't understand numbers, this is absolutely core to what we do. Like, if we can't question statistics or claims, um, that's really vital. So, I mean, I loved working on more or less. And then, um, yeah, so I've always liked questioning the orthodoxy, if you like, but not in a contrary way. Just, I think that's a core question of all journalists, really, you know, is this true? And lots of times it is, <laughs> but sometimes it's not. Which is possibly, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, the reason why you don't like the term investigative journalism, because we are supposed to. We all should be investigating all the time. Right. And, and, and numbers also. I'm really interested in what you say, because I'm illiterate when it comes to um, statistical data in a way, but we all find easy ways to unpick it. And... There are also numbers, figures, that you can't refute, which leads us to the Tavistock, about the 5,000-plus increase in referrals of girls, of teenage girls, young girls, that were referred to the Tavistock. And you look at that figure and you unpick it and you challenge it and you scrutinise it and ultimately it comes back down to, no, there was a 5,000-plus increase. I think it was... 1819 2018-19 in those girls referring themselves or being referred to the Tavistock I mean is this something that you saw before you started doing the reporting about the clinic on Newsnight um I'm not 100% sure I mean I think I first came across the story at all or, or just I came first came across JIDS if you like while I was on maternity leave with my eldest child so it was around 2017 um and I, there wasn't much around then. I mean, I know, you know, you've obviously been interested in years, but there really wasn't much. But there, there was a little bit in some of the papers. I think, I think Janice Turner wrote a piece in 2017. And there was a documentary about what was going on in Canada. But really no more than that. I think I just came across it. Um, and I'm sure that probably did speak to this increase in girls. But I can't really say for sure. I mean, really, it was, it was when the news of David Bell's report trickled out um you know first in the observer that it existed but then some of its findings into the sunday times in early 2019 that i just thought well what's going on not i had no idea whether what those clinicians were saying was true or not but um it it deserved attention and it didn't really seem to be getting it, it was certainly not in the broadcast media anyway and i i was really interested in your early reports because it was a very measured look at what was happening and it was calm and it was factual and actually didn't get as much kickback as I thought that it might. Did you find that there was either more or less hostility towards you than you thought there might be bearing in mind the toxicity of this debate? I think so obviously Deb, Deborah Cohen and I did this together at Newsnight and she was our health correspondent and, and, you know, Deb is a medically trained doctor. So that was really helpful. So she came with her credentials and, you know, I had a long history of, you know, analytical journalism, if you like. And, and we were massively supported by, by our editor at the time, Esme Wren, and actually the whole programme. But, you know, I think we were all nervous about doing it because nobody else really was, as I say, in the, in the broadcast media. But we just thought that was the right approach to take, you know, to try to be calm 
um, evidence-based and, and really just to ask the questions that we would of any other part of the NHS. You know, what, what's the evidence base here? What do we know about the main medical treatment on offer? What can we learn from those for whom it hasn't worked? Uh, how is the how is the organisation responding to quite serious staff concerns? You know, those were not those are not questions that are out of the ordinary. And what we never did was question anybody's right to transition or anybody's identity. And so for us, it was always as a programme for Deb, myself and for Esme, it was always about the care being provided to this group of young people. We never questioned that trans people exist, of course they do. We never questioned the right to transition. Um, it was about, is every single one of these young people getting the best care for them? Um, and in terms of the pushback, sorry to answer your question, we did receive some grief. Um, I think probably Deb received more than I did because I, um, producers are often in the background, um, although obviously it was a, you know, I, my name was always on it as well. Um, we did see we did we did receive some grief, but I, I think not as much as people probably expected that we did. Um I mean I was always surprised by which art articles or films prompted the most grief. I think when we wrote up the um the findings of NICE that the evidence base for using puberty blockers and cross sex hormones for the treatment of gender related distress was very low, we got a fair bit of grief from that just on social media. But that was literally reporting what Nice had said. So that was quite surprising. And and I think, you know, writing up court reports, which were not our words, they were the words of judges or, or what have you. Um, but I think, yeah, I think because, because of the approach we took, we did get pushback, but probably not as much as, as, as other people have done. But because we were calm and I think it was really difficult to challenge what we said yeah but you know having said that um and that all makes sense i think it was orwell that said that freedom is the right to say that two plus two makes four so maybe when you're reporting on the truth on hard facts as you've just explained like the nice um report that can irk people more because what you're doing is saying we have this, it's irrefutable, and what do you make of it? I'm just presenting it to you, the public, to reach your own conclusion. And I think that that's the most powerful tool that you have. Well, and that's the approach I've tried to take in the book. You know, I don't think it is for journalists to tell people what to think. It's for us to present the facts, the evidence, in the calmest, clearest way we can, and the most you know, the fairest way I can. I mean, I've spoken to people in the book who have had very positive experiences at JIDS. I've, obviously, some people did. That's, you know, you can't dispute that. Um, and I've spoken to clinicians who, who speak very favourably of it as well. And it was a real mixed bag. So, I, yeah, I, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not telling people what to think. I'm presenting it in the, yeah, in the calmest, most evidence-based way I can. And it's for people to make up their minds. I mean... So we're different types of journalists in a way. We have different experiences within the trade. We came to it for perhaps different reasons through different circumstances. And I became a journalist because I was a campaigner, a feminist campaigner, and saw that it was quite powerful to get your words out there and to 
I suppose, challenge the orthodoxy in, in that way. But my forage into this issue was in 2003. It was a year before I wrote an article in The Guardian that was the first to go online um, that I'd written. And therefore, it kind of didn't get the trans activists as irked as the Guardian article did. But but I actually spoke to the urologist um, James Bellringer, who features in your book. And, and I, I did that because in 2003, I was looking at the diagnoses of transsexuality, as it was known then. And I was doing it for the Telegraph magazine. And I did this because I had heard about a teacher a female teacher who had gone back to school after the summer holidays as a male teacher. And I read about it in a tabloid newspaper. And of course, you know, it was unkind. It was cruel. There wasn't much reporting there. It was shock horror. This person used to be a woman and is now a man. And so I thought, is that still around? I don't believe that these these ideas about brain sex and this essentialist notion of what it means to be male and female is still holding sway. And so I did this piece looking at the issue, spoke to James Bellringer, called the Tavistock, didn't really get anywhere at all with them, was passed from pillar to post, and interviewed Claudia, um, a trans woman who had been transitioned in the 1980s having been an unhappy gay man but unhappy because of external forces as opposed to being unhappy um, as a man and that that piece was quite extraordinary because Claudia told me something I hadn't expected which is that Claudia was deeply unhappy having transitioned and was pushed through rushed through in Claudia's words after a 45-minute consultation with a psychiatrist called Russell Reed, who was at the Charing Cross Clinic, where, in fact, James Bellringer worked. Anyway, so I did this this piece, this investigation, um, and it was basically saying, I'm a feminist. I thought we'd got over brain sex. I thought we'd got over the idea that you can be trapped in the wrong body. This is still happening. In fact, it's growing into an industry. Maybe big farmers involved. I don't understand why the surgeon's life is being taken to correct what is clearly um, a social um, uh, condition. And and that was the beginning of it for me, but it seems so long ago now to think that in 2003, these clinicians were acting with impunity in presenting transsexuality or trapped in the wrong body as a so-called condition, all around the world at conferences, um, at, at high-level meetings, at the UN, at, at big medical forum. Did you have a look at how this all became so much more persuasive in that way due to the growth of social media? Because that was when I hit the story. It was right at the beginning of message boards before Twitter, but when when actually trans activists and clinicians were starting to to be in dialogue, well, I think certainly in you know, and I, I know about the case of Russell Reed. Um, I've 
I've read about that. Um, <clears throat> I think certainly in in for the under eighteens at that time in the early two thousands there wasn't a great amount of medical transition. I mean, at JIDS, for example, you had to be sixteen before you could go on the blocker, and they didn't offer cross sex hormones at all. So it was it was predominantly you know it was almost solely left to to adult services. And I thought what was really interesting. When I spoke to Russell Viner, Professor Russell Viner, for the book, which I was really grateful for, he gave me a lot of time, who led JIDS's early intervention study, if you like. He was the endocrinologist, which was about, you know, trying to look at the impact of blocking puberty earlier on young people with gender-related distress. And he said, look, it, for them, it wasn't, for him anyway, it wasn't so much the influence of, of, of trans groups it it was really the medical community that they were getting the pressure from. Um, and it was just much more complicated than, than people like to believe, that it's all coming from, from you know, pressure groups. And, and he said, actually, you know, we were being told, yes, there are consequences to acting, but there are also consequences to not acting. And there appears to be this treatment that can really help. And, you know, the Dutch are doing it and... Their data at that time, sort of getting towards the late 2000s, appeared to be positive. And he said, so as doctors, we always proceed with caution. There wasn't enough evidence. So what were we doing? But he said it was, you know, it wasn't just people working in gender medicine. It was endocrinologists. They were saying, look, like we, you know, in theory, we know how these these drugs work. You know, they, they stop hormones and we, we use them for other conditions. So I think... Um, from my research around that time, at least, it wasn't there wasn't a huge influence of social media, but um, certainly, you know, one of the young people's well, they're all adults now, but 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 Harriet's story, which features in the book, um, you know, she said for sure her, for her, her trans identification and uh, you know, and actually her belief that this was you know, it was an escape mechanism for her. And that was, that had a very large social media influence. You know, she, it made her, it made sense to her that she, she'd had a same sex relationship with another girl and she'd been made to feel ashamed about that. She was in an all girls school and it was becoming a bit trendy to be either trans or non-binary. And she, alongside that, she had some mental health difficulties and eat, disordered eating. And she was using Tumblr absolutely loads. And she said, well, and this was a way to jump ship from all these problems that I was feeling. And for a while, she was really, really happy. So I think for some people, absolutely, social media's played a part. But I think, I don't know, I just think it's a bit more complicated than that, really. I think different people will find their own ways into it. But I agree. I mean, Claudia, you know, um, in the 1980s, as a, a successful opera singer, a gay man in a happy relationship, found a way into this world by being told there's such a thing as a sex change and there's this doctor Russell Reed who will definitely sign you off for surgery and hormones if you say x y and z and that is literally what happened and the tribunal um, into Russell Reed's practice showed that and and so this is your book is a way in which we can see one story about how a particular aspect of what they call trans healthcare 
I would challenge the healthcare narrative when it comes to children and surgery and hormones being about healthcare. But tell me how your book came to be, because obviously you're doing these investigations. It must have been fascinating if we can remove the horror we know is involved and and the and the toxicity and the like this is a deeply fascinating story of its time isn't it yeah it is I mean the book came about really because I'd reached a point um so I we'd done four four sort of quite substantial films for Newsnight we did a file on four for Radio 4 and you know I don't know eight ten articles on various, you know, various lengths and what have you. But I actually just knew so much more than I could ever get out in a 12-minute film. And and that's, you know, not being blocked or anything like that was massively supported. But, um, and I came to know more and as clinicians told me more, you know, I just thought I have to, I can't not write this in a way. I mean, I never thought I could write a book. I was, um, my old an old colleague Innes Bowen and a friend um encouraged me to do it but I I just I couldn't have it in my head any longer and not share it and actually during the process of writing I came to know far more than I ever knew before and things that I you know I didn't know I didn't know what I didn't know but um so it was it was that and also I just felt there needed to be as close as there can be to a definitive record because I could see things had gone wrong, you know, and right, but things had gone wrong. And I think it's very difficult to question that. And there has to be a record of these things so we can learn. Um, And I think for the clinicians, it was also trying to convey the fact that, you know, if you're the average semi-engaged layperson you might think that there's no uh no lack of agreement within gender clinics about the best way to care for this group of young people and if there is disagreement that it's motivated by transphobia and and nothing could be further from the truth you know in gender clinics across the world we've seen it in the united states here in the uk in europe there is fundamental disagreement uh, professional disagreement about the best way to care for this often distressed, often vulnerable and diverse group of young people. Um, And I thought it was important to bring that out of the clinics and to wider society because it's a question, you know, Dr Hilary Casser said, this is everybody's business. I know some people have taken issue with that, particularly in the trans community. But I think... Not all young people who experience distress around their gender are going to grow up to be trans. And so it's a question of... It, it, it is obviously about the trans community, but it's about children as well. And, and so it, there needs to be input from, from, from wider society and calm debate. And, that, and that's, that's what I was hoping to do. But as I say, I mean, I had no idea what I was getting into, really. Um, and I was heavily pregnant when I signed the contract. And, um, it, yeah, it's been very difficult. What surprised you the most? There's always something, isn't there? When you start looking at a topic that you know well from whichever angles or perspectives, and you've done lots of research already. So it's a book that you're 
researching, you've embarked upon the project with a base knowledge. What surprised you the most about what you discovered? I think there were a few things. So in no particular order. I was surprised at the number of people that were concerned and who still had those concerns. And some of the people I spoke to who I didn't know existed before embarking on the book had never talked about their time at JIDS before. Um, they just sort of parked it. But but the the consistency in their experiences, you know, I it really isn't a small handful of people that had these concerns. And I'm so grateful to those that have agreed to be named and it's incredibly, you know, it's brave. And I mean from all perspectives, actually, because anybody that talks out about this gets attacked. Um, but but lots and lots of people were were quite con- you know had had concerns and it was the the level of consistency from people who had never met worked at different jid sites at different times was was quite extraordinary. Another thing that really surprised me was what was going on in the wider Tavistock Trust that so many very senior clinicians in other departments were not only concerned but were raising concerns with an offer of help and they had expertise that really could have helped JIDS as well in, in trauma and eating disorders and, and what have you. And, and those voices seemed to get a similar reaction to the JIDS clinicians themselves, which was sort of nothing to see here. You know, you're attacking individuals, whereas obviously they weren't. It was about care. I think I always knew that the data weren't really there, but I didn't quite appreciate to what extent. And I think that was shocking that for a clinic that's been running for more than 30 years, we really don't know how, I don't know, 10,000 or so young people have fared. And I think there's a tendency to solely concentrate on those that have been referred for physical interventions, but it's so much bigger than that because we don't know how how many young people were assessed at JIDS, you know, they were there in their late, in that later age bracket, sort of 16, 17, didn't go on the blocker because it was, frankly, there was no puberty to block, but went straight to adult services. We don't know how they've fared. Like like Harriet, for example, you know, she says her report just wasn't very good and it was taken as gospel and then she's on testosterone at the first appointment. We don't know how many people were referred for the blocker at JIDS who are happy now. We don't know how many have physically transitioned who are not happy. We don't know how many people, their their gender distress resolved without any physical interventions and how and why. We just don't really know anything. Um, I think what we know is, at the moment, in 2023, there are people for whom it appears to have helped and they say it's helped. And we also know there are people it has harmed. And we don't really know the numbers either way. Um, and I think the other thing that really shocked me was that there were so many opportunities to ch- change direction or to strengthen practices and they weren't taken for, for whatever reason. Yes. And, and you, you spoke to, I mean, many, many people who had, who had worked at JIDS, who had insider knowledge of JIDS, who tried to blow the whistle who did blow the whistle. And one of them is Kirsty Entwistle. And I was really interested 
in Kirsty because, as you say in your book, she was called transphobic because she said that she didn't have a gender identity, that she was a female. That was enough for another clinician at JIDS to say that she was a transphobe. Kirsty Entwistle had worked with sexually abused girls in a children's home in Rochdale. These were victims of the so-called grooming gangs. I had an interest um, in this phenomenon from back in the early 2000s and saw how it was very difficult to persuade people that this was happening on an industrial scale. And the connection that Kirsty made when she was at JIDS wasn't that the girls were being sexually abused or that JIDS were in any way facilitating that sexual abuse. It's about girls begging to be allowed to do something that the adults knew, and the girls probably knew on one level, was harmful to them. And and that's the problem, isn't it? Because if you have girls that are distressed about their bodies, which many girls have, who are not transgender, who are not suitable in any way to be referred for surgery and hormones and the like, if girls are gender dysphoric, surely we need to look at underlying reasons why that might be. Because I remember that feeling when I was a teenager back in the 1970s. And Kirsty, I think, asked those questions in quite a pertinent way, but of course was shut down. Yeah, I mean, she she believed that the the model that, that Jids was following up in Leeds anyway, I mean, by that point, some clinicians down in London had started really extending the assessments. But she believed that what they were following in Leeds, which was a three to six session assessment model, was just inadequate to really explore what was going on with so many of these young people who appeared to have so many other difficulties going on in their lives. And, I mean, interestingly, so many of the clinicians are not saying that someone who has perhaps, you know, experienced trauma as a child or who is autistic or what have you could never transition. They were just saying that those things need to be discussed, thought through um, before a physical transition could be considered because because of the the chance of getting it wrong, the chance of medicating when actually the distress might be for some people as a result of something else. And that's what they were saying. And and that that care wasn't always taken to do that. That sounds perfectly reasonable to me. And I know it sounds perfectly reasonable to the many, many people that have read your book, have commented on it and have reviewed it. Tell me about the reception that you've had, because it looks pretty incredible to me how the book's been received so far. I've been completely overwhelmed with the response so far. It's not even out yet. It's out on Thursday. But um, <laughs> I'm really... I'm delighted that, that the reviews have taken the book in the spirit that it was intended, which is, you know, a calm rational look at this which acknowledges where things went right but also where things have gone very badly wrong um you know and I think to get favorable reviews in the observer the ft and the telegraph and the times sort of speaks to the fact that this is not an ideological story it's not a culture war story it's not about left and right in politics it's about healthcare, and has this group of young people, have all of them received the best care 
that they needed. What's the main takeaway from the book? If you had to give me a top line, something that you think is the most important thing that we can either learn or consider from the book and from your research, what would that be? I think it's that sometimes things can go wrong even when the people involved are very well-intentioned and that nothing should be off-limits from calm, rational discussion and interrogation. And I was really struck by what many of the clinicians said, actually, about this, which was, you know, one said the word gender sort of tended to create this cloak of mystery around it. And another said it it, it muddied the waters. And I think within the Tavistock Trust, within NHS England, within society, and I put the media in there as well, because the word gender is part of this story, there hasn't been the calm, evidence-based look at it that there perhaps should have been. And, you know, Dr Hilary Cass said in her interim review, this it hasn't received the level of scrutiny that one would usually expect of a service providing, you know, quite innovative treatments to children. I think that perhaps is the takeaway, that sometimes things can go wrong, even when there are good intentions, and we must be allowed to question things without it being taken as a questioning of the people at the heart of the story if you like um you know questioning the care provided to a group of young people of whom will have very different needs is not questioning those young people themselves or indeed the adults that they may grow on to be um and i think you know, I think the takeaway message, and it's something that Dr Hilary Cass has identified, and really is all that these clinicians were saying, is that just as there appear to be different ways into a young person's gender incongruence or distress, there will be different ways out of it as well. And there will be no one pathway that suits each and every one of these young people. And for some... It may well be, and it appears to be, a, a physical transition. The book does not is not anti-transition in any way. For others, it won't be. And I think what those clinicians are saying is that JIDS was very geared up to helping those for whom it might work, and it wasn't geared up for helping those for whom it won't. I think that's a perfect takeaway for us, and I'm so grateful to you Hannah for your work and for your calm scrutiny which is exactly what we need so thank you thank you very much thank you for listening this book has already done incredibly well and I publish this podcast on its publication day and it has been fanfared with rave reviews across most of the major newspapers There's one that's missing. One of the liberal newspapers in the UK hasn't yet gone near it. I'll leave you to guess which one. Bye for now.